Hey, this is Aaron Brockett, lead pastor of Traders Point Church. Regardless of where you are tuning in around the world or if you call Indianapolis home, I just wanna thank you for tuning in to our weekly message podcast. Our prayer and desire is that God would take the content of these messages and use it to encourage you in your relationship with Jesus as you discover God's purpose for your life. All right, it's good to see everybody today, and I want to welcome all of our guests and first-time visitors across all of our campuses. We are one church gathering in multiple rooms and locations around our great city, so I want to say hello to our North Campus, uh, Downtown West, anybody tuning in live online, or maybe you're watching later in the week on demand, and those of you here at Northwest, you guys are looking good. How you doing? You guys good to see you today? Uh, Man, so glad to have you. If you uh, have been coming for a while and you've been kind of looking around and you're like, man, it's kind of a big place and where do I go next and what's my next step towards greater connection and spiritual growth, uh, the answer is Growth Track. And I would just encourage you to check that out. You can get all that information online or at Connection Central at all of our campuses. It's about a 40-minute gathering after the service with a small group of people. And we just want to help facilitate your growth and to help uh, really all, the, all growth is is what's the step in front of me. And we want to help clarify that for you and come alongside you and encourage you in that. So I hope that you'll check out Growth Track. If you uh, are just now coming in or just visiting with us, we are in week number two of a series of messages that we are calling Fresh Faith. And we're actually walking our way through a New Testament letter because uh, that, that's originally what it was. It wasn't a book. It was a letter that Paul wrote to real people living in a real city with real problems and real issues. And he's trying to encourage them. He's giving them a fresh faith. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this word right here, the, the word doldrums. It's a word that we don't use that often anymore, but uh, really it was uh, originally a nautical term. Uh, back in the day, whenever we relied upon ships to, to get merchandise around the world, and if you ever found yourself in that place in the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean, around the equator where there was a system of low pressure uh, to where the winds were either really, really low or non-existent, then you said you got caught in the doldrums. And if you were there on a ship, you could be there for days or weeks or even months waiting on the wind to fill your sails to get you out of there. Now, we don't uh, refer to this term that often anymore uh, because of the invention of the engine, praise the Lord. Um, but this term is true today just as much as it was then. In fact, I don't know if any of you have ever felt like you've been in the spiritual doldrums or maybe the emotional doldrums where... Uh, you're just in kind of this season of, of maybe burnout or you feel like you've plateaued or you're, you're sort of directionless. You're not exactly sure what's next in life. I've definitely felt this way multiple times in my life. The, the really difficult thing is when you can't quite fully put your finger on why you feel that way. It's kind of like when you look at the surface of my life, everything should be great, but yet it doesn't feel great. I, I don't seem to be having a lot of fun. I'm not happy. What's wrong? And I just sort of feel burned out. And I wonder if this is what David was feeling. We looked at this verse last week from Psalm 51. When he says this, he says, bring me back from gray exile. It's like that feeling of just, it's just overcast. And put a fresh wind in my sails. He's just crying out to God. God, I need some, I need a fresh wind from you to get me out of these spiritual and emotional doldrums. And so Ephesians, the content of Ephesians can give that to us. 
but others of us, maybe it's not so much a fresh wind or fresh encouragement. Maybe we just need a fresh uh, understanding or a fresh take as to who God really is and to who we really are and what is the message and the purpose of God for our lives because maybe we just don't fully understand it. Because listen, there's a lot that can distort that message. There's a lot that can confuse it. I even heard from a number of you this last week that said, man, I just needed to be reminded. Like I knew it, but I forgot it because life can just sort of chip away at my peace and my hope and my understanding. And so some of us need a fresh wind. Some of us need fresh encouragement. Some of us just need a fresh understanding of something that maybe we never understood or we forgot. And Ephesians gives us both of those things. Uh, One theologian said that, uh, or one commentator said that Ephesians is sort of like Paul's theological masterpiece, which uh, I don't know if you agree with that or not. Those of you that are Bible students, you might take issue with that because Paul also wrote another tiny little book in the New Testament called Romans. And some of you are chuckling because you know what's in Romans. Some of you may not. That's totally fine. But Romans, I would call it like the Mount Everest of the Bible. Uh, I, I became a Christian by reading Romans. And I've had a number of you over the years say, hey, Aaron, when are you just going to do a series all on Romans? Just when are you going to teach straight through Romans? And my response is, I want to, I'm going to, I'm not ready yet. I've been following after Jesus seriously for like 25 years. I've been preaching for the last 20. Near as I can tell, I think I've written and delivered about 3,000 sermons, and I'm still training because <laughs> it's my Everest. And Paul's content is substantial in Romans, but here's where I think Ephesians has a leg up on Romans. Romans is 16 chapters long, and Ephesians is six. Some of you are like, now you're talking my language, all right? So you Cliff Notes version people out there, all right? But somebody once said this, they said, if you can really get your head around the content of Ephesians, then you can understand the whole Bible. Like I would even reduce it even to the first three chapters of Ephesians, because the first three chapters of Ephesians are all on theology, which all theology is, is thoughts about God, who he is, what he's done, what his message is, what his purpose is for your life. The last three chapters of Ephesians is all the application, or a better word is the implication, the implication of these thoughts on God. So Paul is really substantial. He offers all the content, but he's, he's comprehensive, but he's very concise. And Paul starts off in chapter one, if you missed it last week, basically helping us to figure out who we are. It's our identity. See, that, that question, who am I, is the most important question aside from who God is that you will ever get an answer to. And from the days that we uh, begin to take our first steps or begin to form words, we begin to wonder who we are. And so can I just ask you today, what informs the answer to that question? of your identity. And what I mean is, if somebody were to say, not, not what's your name, but who are you? How do you answer? Do you answer uh, what, what you do for a living or maybe your social status? Many of us, what informs our identity is who's staring back at us in the mirror. Many of us, what informs our identity is the title that comes in front of our name or the role that we have or how much money we make or on and on. We could go, and listen, those things aren't bad things at all. They're just not substantial enough to build an identity on. And the reason why is that if you build your identity on the shape of your body or the size of your muscles or who's looking back at you in the mirror, (laughs) I hate to break it to you, it's going to change, all right? It's going to change. And uh, 
all of a sudden, everything that you've been building your identity on evaporates. I know that if you build your identity up on your athletic ability, and I know we have a number of amateur and professional athletes in our church, and so if you build your identity based upon what you can do on a track or a field or a court, and then you retire at the age of 30, then who are you? Many of us, we build our identity on maybe that person we're in a relationship with or that job that we have or that degree we can get or our social standing. Not bad things. All those things will slide out from underneath us. And just as soon as we think we know who we are, it changes. And God says from chapter 1, if you were here last week, I want to give you an identity that you can live from. Don't, don't live for an identity. Live from an identity. And so we said last week that God has set his love on you from the very beginning of time, that God has chosen you in advance, that God has adopted you into his family. Get this, long before God had established the foundations of the world, he had established your identity. That's amazing. Does anybody agree with that? I'm preaching about 30% better than your respondent. All right, just, just, just want to throw that out there. My gift is humility, all right? No, no, let let me, that's a good sentence. Let me read that again. Long before God established the foundations of the world, he established your identity. Think about the truth of that. Let that hit you for a minute. Hey, that's much better. We'll edit that first one out of the video, all right? So what that means is that your identity isn't based on your performance, It's not based on your lovability. It's not based upon what you look like. God already established your identity before you existed. How does that work? I have no idea. I'm not God. Thank goodness. But he's established who you are. He says you are loved and you are chosen. The heart of the gospel message is that God wants to give you an identity for you to live from, not for. Now, if that is not enough to stir you, then chances are you don't really fully understand the bad news. In other words, in order for the good news to really be good news, you've got to really have a good grasp of the bad news. I don't know about you, uh, but I am kind of a, um, a good news second kind of a person. How many of you like to get the bad news first or the good news first? Right? You want the, how many bad news people? All of our campuses. All right, there we see. I see all the pessimists in the room. All right, uh, all right how many of you are like, no, no, I, I want the, you know, the good news first. Right? How many there? All right, not as many. All right, so... I'd have to say, I, I want to get the bad news first for two reasons. Is that oftentimes the good news helps me to forget the bad news. And the good news is so much better once I know the bad news. And see, that the, what we would call the gospel message, in other words, the message of God, God's purpose for your life, God's hope for your life, it has two elements to it that we can't, down, and we can't downplay either one of them. There's the bad news and the good news. There's the diagnosis, and then there's the prescription, the cure. So um, we all know that if you go to the doctor and a doctor misdiagnoses your condition, then you can't get well. Like if I go to the doctor and I've got cancer all through my body, but the doctor doesn't want to hurt my feelings, so the doctor tells me that I have a cold and just says, well, you know, just take some vitamin C and sip on some chicken noodle soup and get some rest and you'll be good. That's not the most loving thing that doctor can do. They, They might think that that's loving because they don't want to give me a bad day by telling me the truth, but I need to know, I need to know the diagnosis if I'm going to get the cure. So we're going to read 10 verses in chapter 2 of Ephesians, and what Paul's going to do 
is he's going to give us a diagnosis in the first three verses. It's the bad news. And then he's going to spend the last seven verses giving us the good news. So he spends more time on the good news than the bad news. But the bad news is really, really important. Because if the good news is going to change you, the bad news has got to shake you. And so he starts off in verse 1 and he says this. He goes, once you were dead. <laughs> there we go. All right. Because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work. He's not passive. He's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So that's awesome. How many of you are like, we shouldn't have come to church today? This is not very uplifting. I've never seen these first three verses on a coffee cup. <laughs> Chances are you're not going to open up Instagram later today and see, you know, th these verses on a beautiful picture with a great filter. Hashtag bless life, right? You're just, you're just not going to see it. These three verses as a preacher are not fun to teach from. And so the temptation is to maybe overlook it. The temptation is to downplay it. Uh, in other words, these three verses aren't really good verses to preach from to grow a church. But they are good verses to use to grow people. And that's what we want to do. I, I, I love the fact that Paul is just really honest here. He just kind of hits us with the truth. But please understand this. There is a way in order for us to hear the truth that is either hurtful or harmful. This is not harmful. It might hurt. It might be unpleasant to listen to, but it's not harmful. There, there's a difference, all right? It's the, it's the, it's the same thing like you, you can't say that uh, somebody attacking you with a knife or a surgeon cutting you open with a scalpel is the same thing. Like you're, you're still being cut open, but one is to harm. The other might hurt, but it's for your healing. And I've got people in my life that are willing to tell me the truth, and it hurts, but it doesn't harm. And I've got other people in my life that want to tell me the truth and their intention is to harm. And all, all the difference is in the tone. And Jesus was a master at this. Jesus could speak the truth in love. Jesus could say to a, a woman who was hurting, who at a well in the middle of the afternoon, which by the way, have you ever wondered why she was there in the middle of the afternoon? It's because she didn't want to see anybody. You went to go get water early in the morning or late at night. She goes in the heat of the day. My guess is because she didn't want to face the looks and the words of the other people that might be judging her. And Jesus says to her, I want to give you living water that you'll never thirst again. I know everything about you. And then he says this, go and sin no more. He gave her grace and truth. He said something to her to, to help her, not to, to harm her. And so Paul comes out here in verse 1 and he says, hey, hey once you were... Dead. So what does he mean by that word? Well, the primary characteristic of a dead person is that they're unresponsive. That they, they can't do anything to save themselves. So um, my uh, grandfather, when I was growing up, I always noticed that he uh, was missing the little finger on his left hand, the pinky finger on his left hand. And he would always like, um, when I would go to visit him, he would always like uh, treat it like a puppet. Like the little stub, he would like, hey there, Aaron. And I had a very weird childhood, all right? It's, 
really messed up. And so I remember one day when I was sort of old enough, I said, Grandpa, what happened to your finger? Where did it go? And so he told me the story. He said when he was a little boy, he was uh, chasing his older brothers around, and they jumped over a fence uh, next to, like, it was like this electrical field, and they were playing inside the electrical field. So great job, great grandma and grandpa. And so... Um, <laughs> And he said that uh, he, was, he had a toy gun that was made of metal, and he raised it up in the air and hit a power line, and it electrocuted him. And they rushed him to the hospital, and when it, he said when they got to the hospital, he had no pulse. He said, I was technically dead. And I remember as a little boy thinking, whoa, that's how close I came to not existing, because he died, right? He didn't have a pulse. And I said, what happened? And he said, they brought me back. Like, he didn't do anything in that moment. He was helpless. He was unresponsive. And this is, this is what Paul means when he says that you and I were dead. He doesn't say that we need to be edited. He didn't say we needed to be updated. He didn't say we needed a reboot. He didn't say we had 90% of it and Jesus kicked in the last 10%. He said, no, we were dead, meaning that we were unresponsive and totally helpless and we needed to be rescued. Why were we dead? Well, he answers that question. He says, because of sin. Now, I don't know how that word hits you. Many times we reduce the word sin to like, um, like a list of actions or unsavory behaviors that God doesn't care for because he's old-fashioned. But that's not what sin is. Sin is actually not as much of an action as it is a condition. See, we are not, um, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are Sinners, we actually have a whole lot more freedom in Christ than what we even realize. And so sin is more of a condition. It's, it's not, it's not an, an action. Now, the actions might speak to the condition, but it's a condition that we need to be healed from. Let, let me explain it this way. Um, uh, two years ago, I was uh, cutting a tree down in my backyard that was covered in really pretty leaves. And I didn't realize it was poison ivy. And so I... Uh, I do now. Um, I cut the tree down with the chainsaw, and then I cut it up into pieces, and then I picked up the pieces uh, with the pretty little leaves draped all over my arms and my abdomen and threw it into a big brush pile. And uh, about a week later, um, I had a condition. All right, this is a picture of it. Uh, I won't leave that up there very long. I don't want you throwing up in your mouth a little bit. All right, um, but I had this condition. In fact, I, I preached in long sleeves that whole month, and it was August, because my arms were covered in poison ivy. Now, you would never say, Aaron, stop doing poison ivy. Because it's not an action. It's, it's a condition that I had. And the action is oftentimes the symptom of the condition, but no amount of behavioral change, moralism, willpower is going to fix it. In fact, if that's the game that you're playing, then it'll either lead to uh, thinking too much of yourself and your ability or not enough of yourself and your identity. And so the condition of sin causes me to think that the main problem in the world is other people instead of looking inside myself. The condition of sin causes me to, to say, well, I'm basically a good person who occasionally messes up and does some bad things. Or as I said last week, I think too lowly of myself. Sin is a condition that we are all born into this world in that we need to be rescued from. And one of the things that reminds me of that all the time is my, my four kids, because I've never sat them down to teach them how to sin. They are experts in that all by themselves. 
I didn't, I didn't send them to sin camp, all right? They're just, <laughs> they're sinners, right? Uh, uh, about 12 years ago, when my uh, oldest two kids were two and four, I was at a meeting till about 9.30 at night. I came home, walked in the kitchen door. I'm exhausted from the day. Walk in. My wife is standing there holding my two-year-old daughter, and they are both crying uncontrollably, which is exactly what you want to walk into late at night. And I got a, got a closer look, and my daughter, her hair is, um, has, has been cut, but it's like all uneven and splotchy. And her face uh, was covered in some kind of brownish red. I couldn't tell if it was blood. It looked like blood when I first saw it. And the way that they were crying, I thought she had gotten out of the house, got hit by a car, got drugged down the street. That's what I thought. That's how it looked. <laughs> and I come to find out when I calmed them down that and my four-year-old son was nowhere to be found, by the way. I... I I found out that uh, she had put them to bed. She thought they were asleep. She went downstairs, and she was talking to, on the phone with my mom uh, in, in the kitchen. And my four-year-old son got up out of bed, which he's not supposed to do. He, he woke his little sister up, which he's not supposed to do. He got her up out of bed, which he's not supposed to do. And he takes her into the master bathroom, sits her down in a chair, gets into mommy's makeup drawer, finds some scissors and some makeup, cuts off her hair, and paints her face. I didn't teach him how to do that. <laughs> He's a sinner, all right? It's a condition that we have that we need to be set free from. And Paul's saying there isn't anything that you can do to set yourself free from it. And I don't know if you noticed in that passage, he goes on to say that actually we have a, an enemy that is at work. That he is actively pursuing you. And, and our enemy is not a car cartoon character with a pointy little mustache and horns and a pitchfork that loves to play pranks on us. No, he's a very real enemy. The, um, Peter describes him in 1 Peter as a roaring lion who's on the loose, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. I don't know about you, that should send you on high alert. Like if you were to go to the Indianapolis Zoo later today and you're walking through with your family and all of a sudden somebody comes on the loudspeaker and they're like, attention, there is a roaring lion on the loose. Everybody stay calm and file to the front gates. Everybody stay calm. Uh-uh, right? Uh, there's a roaring lion on the loose. I'm alert. I'm running. I'm getting my family. And we're getting out of there. Paul says there is an enemy who is at work. Right, he's, he's actively at work right now. Meaning that if you're spiritually coasting, then you're losing ground. That if you're just sort of coasting through this life, if you came in here sleepy today, if you're not expecting a word from God, if you're not looking to take that next step of growth, then you're losing ground. And the two tools, the two things that he loves, loves to use against every one of us is arrogance or anxiety. So he'll try to get you to be really arrogant. You don't, you don't need God. You're doing pretty well on your own. Everything's great. Or anxiety. I'm not good enough. You look in the mirror. You don't like what you see. You're all bent up and anxious. And God says, I want to free you from this. And he finally says there at the end of verse 3 that God's angry. Maybe some of you that kind of alarmed you. Please understand that God's anger is not against you. It's for you. It's kind of like uh, whenever your kids, like uh, if you uh, were to tell your kids, stay right by me, hold my hand, don't run out into the street, and they ignore you, and they run out in the street, and they get hit by a car, would you be angry? 
Yeah. Not at them, before them. Like, why didn't you listen to why, why didn't you listen to me? Listen, that's the diagnosis, those first three verses. Now, now Paul's gonna spend the last seven verses talking about the good news. And I love what he how he starts off in verse four. It's the two greatest words in the English language, one commentator said, but God. In other words, we were helpless and hopeless and unresponsive and bound up and kidnapped and captured and dead, but God, who is so rich in mercy. He's not stingy with his mercy, he's rich in it. He's not just kind of doling it out little by little. He wants to lavish us with his mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead And this is one of the greatest sentences in the New Testament. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. It isn't based on anything else that you could bring to the table. It's not 50-50. It's not 70-30. It's only by God's grace. And when I try to say, okay, I understand that, but but let me let me kind of let me bring something to it, God. Let me try to, let me try to live up to this in some way. And every single time I do that, I mess it up. Every single time I do that, it either leads me to be arrogant or leads me to be riddled with anxiety, which I would say are just the two greatest afflictions in our lives right now. So um, several years ago, I got really, really sick one week and I was like flat on my back. I had something really nasty and I was on all kinds of prescription uh, medication trying to get better and this was back when we were in Saturday night services and so all day Saturday I'm in bed flat on my back I'd taken some prescription cough medication to to stop coughing so I could get some sleep and it like made me really really drowsy and my alarm goes off at 2 30 in the afternoon I had a fever I wasn't feeling very good and I drug myself up out of bed got into the shower because I had to preach at five o'clock and I could not wake up you ever had that feeling where you're just all drugged up prescription medication all right and uh and you're just like man I can't wake up and I, and I gotta get, get in front of these people and so on the way to the church I stopped at the gas station and they had those three for one five hour energy things and I thought well if one works then three is way better all right and so I like slammed all three of them and and I got in here and I'm trying to wake up and I'm still feeling kind of groggy it didn't feel right at all and and uh, I'm back, I'm in the green room, getting ready to walk out here to preach. And I'm like, man, I'm still just not very alert. And somebody had a big bottle of Mountain Dew back there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I chugged that whole thing. And I got out here and the room started spinning. And there was like unicorns bouncing from section to section. And my left eye was twitching. And I was just like, I don't even know what I'm saying right now. I hope this doesn't end up on YouTube somewhere. Because every single time I try to bring something to the equation or I try to do something about it, I mess it up. And I've done that over and over again. And Paul's simply saying, hey, I've already given you the diagnosis and the cure is just for you to be a recipient of God's grace. Would you just receive it? That he is rich in mercy. He's not stingy with it. He loves you so much. He's not just putting up with you. Even though you were responsive, unresponsive, because of this condition of sin in your life, he gave us Jesus and some might say well why was Jesus even necessary why did Jesus have to die for us to be forgiven why couldn't God just sweep it under the rug or just forgive and the answer to that question is because God's a just God and you wouldn't want it any other way but he's also a gracious God in the sense that he's not leaving us on the hook to pay for it 
And so God won't just sweep it under the rug. You wouldn't want a God who operated that way. A few weeks ago, I was in, um, out on the West Coast for some meetings. I rented a car, and when I brought the car back to the rental agency, you know how they do those like walk around to see if there's any damage? I never pay attention. I probably should from now on. <laughs> I will from now on. But I was just kind of standing there like I was on my phone, and, and the, they were walking around the, the car, and they said, Sir, what happened back here? I was like, what do you mean? And they motioned me back there, and on the back left quarter panel, it was all bashed in. And I'm standing there, and like, I, have, I really have no idea. I was like, I have no idea how that happened. <laughs> and she looked at me like, yeah, right. And I felt like a liar, right? I was like, I really don't know how that happened. I, I wasn't in an accident. I don't re- recall any of that. And she was just looking at me like, yeah, 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 whatever, sure. And I was like, I, I don't know. What are we going to do? And she said, well, regardless of... Whether you realize it or not, somebody has to pay. Somebody has to make this thing right. And see, God is a just God who says someone has to pay. And listen, the payment is way too steep for you to bear. And so I'll bear it. I'll bear it in the life of my son. And he says in verse 6, he says, For he raised us up from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Have you noticed how all this is past tense? And you notice how many times he says, in Christ and with Christ? So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Listen, in God's eyes, if you've received that gift of grace in your life, you are already seated with Christ at God's table. And that should give you confidence. That should give you confidence that when you hear the heckles, the heckles of your enemy, hey, you're a loser. Or you aren't loved. Or who do you think you are anyway? Or you're damaged goods. You're a fake. You're a failure. And you're a fraud. You can't do it. You can confidently tell him who you are. That because of Jesus, you've been brought into the family. That no longer are you dead, you're alive. No longer are you unresponsive, you're alert. No longer are you bitter, you're filled with joy. No longer are you angry, but now you're filled with peace. You're no longer homeless, you've got a home. Come on, somebody. You used to be lost, but now you're found all because of Jesus. Did you know that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name? Praying in Jesus' name does not, is not a signal to God to go, hey, God, I'm about to wrap this up. God's like, oh, he said in Jesus' name. He's getting ready to say amen. <laughs> Zoned out on you there for a minute. No. When you say I'm praying in Jesus' name, you're saying I'm praying from the seat of Jesus. So many times we pray and we say, well, I don't feel worthy. Like, I don't think that God is listening to my prayers based on what? Well, that thing I did last night. Like he's really ashamed of me. Or God's not listening to my prayers based on what? I don't have enough faith. Or God's not listening to my prayers based on what? I got a divorce. God's not listening to my prayers based on what? I'm a horrible mom. I'm a bad dad. That's never been in the equation. God does not listen to you because of your performance. God listens to you because of what Jesus did for you. So when you pray... In Jesus' name, you are claiming his identity. And he is listening to you because of Jesus' righteousness, not yours. 
Jesus is your big brother who saved your life. He's not your homeboy. I'm already negative one minute and 43, 45, 46 seconds, but that makes me want to keep going, all right? Uh, but I won't, I won't, all right. Sandra uh, McCracken, in her album, Live Under Lights and Wires, she shares a story of two young boys, who, two brothers, who spent their summers playing near the Mississippi River, and uh, it was during the flooding one year, and they were around some sandbag levees, and they got, uh, they got stranded. And so rescue workers were trying to get to them. And when they finally got to them, they found only one boy. He was standing in quicksand up to the middle of his thigh. And they said, where's your older brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. See, his big brother had hoisted him up, said, I'm going I'm to save your life by sacrificing my own. Jesus did that times a million. He gave up his life so that your life might be saved. And some of you right now, that does not stir you. You know what we call that? Dead. And only the fresh wind of the Spirit can quicken your pulse around that to get you to understand that I have to be saved from something. I don't know how you feel about that word saved. It pops up a lot in this passage. I've had sort of like an on-again, off-again relationship with the word saved in my Christian life. There have been some seasons it turned me off because of the sweaty televangelist who turned it into three syllables. <laughs> Save a duh, right? <laughs> or maybe that really super eager, you know, person on your college campus who came up and like, have you been saved? It's like, get out of my face, right? <laughs> but that's the word. Jesus saved you because you needed to be rescued. There wasn't anything you could do on your own. Jesus didn't throw you a, a little you know, life vests and say, hey, grab a hold of that and let me bring you in. No, you were face down floating and Jesus grabbed you and breathed life into your lungs. That's what he did. So let me, let me finish the passage and I'll be done. It says in verse eight, God saved you by his grace, not when you performed not when you got it all together, not when you overcame your addictions, but when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. That's your identity. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You and I were saved from something for something. And that's why we gather together as a church family to be on mission together because there's a whole bunch of God's kids out there who he created for a purpose. He set his love on them in advance. He chose them before the foundations of the world walking around and we've totally been hijacked by an enemy who wants to confuse us of our true identity when it's been right there in front of us all along. And today, I just wanna leave you with this simple question. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to your neighbor. I'm not talking to your husband. I'm not talking to your kids. I'm not talking to your coworker. I'm talking to, to you. Have you received that gift of grace for yourself? 
Many times when I ask people where they are in their spiritual lives, they'll answer with, well, I grew up Baptist, or my grandma was Catholic, or I believe in God. That's great. Thank you for telling me that. It's not what I asked. Have you personally received this for yourself? And it's not as hard as you think. It's not some religious curriculum you've got to work through and then get graded on. You can do it right now in the seat that you're sitting in. And you just simply claim it. You just simply say, God, I come to you just as I am. I trust that the resurrected king is resurrecting me right now. Breathe new life into me. He'll meet you right where you're seated. So we're just going to spend a few minutes in reflection, taking communion together. The team's going to lead us in another song. I want you to belt it out as if you mean it. I want you to belt it out as people who have come from death to life. Because that's what we've done. That's what God's done in and through, through Jesus. So let me pray. Father, we come to you right now, and I'm so grateful. I'm just as grateful for the bad news as the good, because the bad news helps me to cherish the good. And forgive us, God, when all we want to talk about is the good news. We've got to understand the diagnosis if we're going to understand the cure. And the cure is Jesus. And so we trust you in that. I pray that somebody's life today would change for all of eternity. I pray that somebody would come from death to life. That maybe today's message would be like smelling salts underneath their spiritual nose. That would just awaken them up to trust that you have a plan and a message and a purpose for their lives. We thank you, God, for what you've done for us through Jesus. We receive it now humbly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.